Hi, this is Shep Hyken, author of The Cult of the Customer, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is the amazing Shep Hyken. Shep is a customer service and experience expert and is the chief amazement officer of Shepard Presentations. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author and has been inducted into the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame for lifetime achievement in the speaking profession. Shep works with companies and organizations who want to build loyal relationships with their customers and employees. His articles have been read in hundreds of publications and is the author of several other customer service books that have been highly reviewed. Shep lives in St. Louis, Missouri, and is here to talk about his book, The Cult of the Customer. Create an amazing customer experience that turns satisfied customers into customer evangelists. Welcome, Shep. Hey, I'm excited to be here. And uh, you said we were going to have an amazing interview and the book sums it up. It's going to be amazing. Thanks for having me. It's going to be great. There you go. And I, I think that one of the prerequisites is to bring together amazing people to talk about an amazing topic for amazing listeners. So I think that's a really good conversation. Sounds good to me. So what do you want to talk about today besides the cult? We will get to the cult and why you call it the cult. When you were growing up, Shep, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? I can give you a lot of the same answers I give everyone else, but I'm going to give you one that I've hardly given anybody. How's That's what I um, want. The good stuff. I'm going to give you the first job, my boss, the first job I ever had, and my boss was my grandpa. I actually, at one point, worked for both of my grandpas, but this was when I was eight years old. He would pick me up three days a week, and we went to his drugstore where he was a pharmacist. He owned a drugstore in the, what I would call the near north side of St. Louis. It was basically the hood, you would call it today. And it was really, my grandpa, he not only, I remember I'm eight years old and I'm learning how to work the cash register, learning how to do inventory of greeting cards. He never let me go back and play with the drugs, but he let me paint the store and learn all kinds of things. And he taught me value. I remember every Sunday when we were growing up as little kids, we would go to the drugstore and he would like, he didn't work on Sundays, but he closed the store on Sundays. He would go in and everybody left and he'd shut the store down and lock it up. And he would take us there. We get a candy bar and a soda. What a great thing. I remember my first day of work. He sa- I said, Grandpa, can I go get a soda to eat with my drink with my lunch? And he said, absolutely. And I went, I was reaching into the, like, the little refrigeration machine. And he said, and when you're finished, just go up front and make sure you give Aunt Janice a dime. <laughs> cost a dime. And I go, oh, and I, I didn't have a dime. I was only eight years old. I go, I'll, I'll just drink water. Janice, so he lived in, in an all black, or we worked in an all black neighborhood. We we're the only two, my grandpa, myself, probably the only two white guys in the area. And here's what happened. I was exposed to some of the nicest people in the world. I really think of what's happening today with the racial sensitivities and the prejudice. I'm not going to get political or make a statement, but my grandpa and the exposure I had treated me to treat people like I learned people are people. They're not at such a young age. I didn't I didn't say they're a different color than me. They were just people. I was too young to maybe notice, but maybe that's what my grandpa wanted me to say. And then Ernestine, she was special. It actually was. It turned out it wasn't. And she was big and strong. And one day I made a comment to my grandpa and he says, Ernestine's real name is Ernest. And he explained why. And I went, well, that's cool. And that's just kind of how I accepted things. And I remember this is the best part. On my day off, I remember I worked three days a week there for eight weeks in the summer, eight years old, 50 cents. I thought it was 50 cents a day. It was for 50 cents an hour. 
hour. I was blown away when I got $9.50 on that first day. But on the day off, my grandpa gets robbed at gunpoint. Everybody has wow. to lay down on the ground while the guy went through the cash register. And on the way out, the guy says, and Mr. Heikett, talking to my grandpa, I made sure your grandson wasn't here when I did this. No kidding. My grandpa tells the story and he says, he comes in twice a year and does this. We know he's coming in. We know when he's coming in. We just make sure he needs the money and that's his way of getting it. And I learned all these things and I think it was a great way to be brought up to accept people and be tolerant of situations and love people. And so there's a great mentor and I've never told that story that way to any other interviewer. How's that? I love it. What a great story to learn from and all of the ways that your grandfather treated people well, including you, so that you learn the value of hard work and of treating customers. It was a great interface, even though you weren't responsible for, say, giving change. You were there in the store and absorbed a well, lot of lessons. I got to give change eventually. I could oh. add. I could subtract. And I working at cash register, I knew how to do it. She taught me everything I need to know. My Aunt Janice. <laughs> now, wait a second. Could you make change without the cash register? Yeah. So the cash register back then was not an electronic cash register. At least I don't remember it being that way. Or pushing buttons and pulling a little lever and the door would open. I had to make, it would just say how much it was. It would add up the items. If it was $8.50, I knew they gave me a $10 bill. 50 cents makes nine and a dollar makes 10. Okay. That was easy. There you go. That puts you ahead of probably 97% of all the people operating cash registers today who are completely lost if the cash register just doesn't say how much to give the customer for their change. From being eight years old till today, you still have a passion and an excitement about customer experience. What is it that keeps it alive for you today? I just think it's what I was brought up to do. My grandpa taught me to do that. At, at age 12, I started my first business, which was a birthday party magic show business. And my parents would say, write thank you notes and call them up and make sure they were happy and ask them what tricks they liked the best so that you found out if they weren't talking about tricks, replace them with tricks they will like the best. I was also about 14 years old when I worked for my other grandpa who owned gas stations. And uh, while he didn't directly supervise me because he was in the headquarters, if you will, <laughs> there's several stations, I learned the value of taking care of people. We were a self-serve gasoline station. Oh, actually, back when I was 14, we weren't. We actually had to pump the gas and collect the money on the drive. But when I was in college, we became a self-serve station. I still would go out and help the elderly people on a cold day pump their gas for them so they didn't have to get out of the car simply because it's the right thing to do. As we become more of a self-serve society in many ways, what do people who are business leaders need to remember about the importance of treating customers well and building the relationship? Yeah. So self-service is not, let's try not to talk to the customer. So we'll give them the solutions so they never have to call us. Jeff Bezos even said, we should be so good. We don't need a customer service call center for people to call in. And, but we know that's not realistic. Somebody's going to have a problem. And oftentimes the problem with Amazon didn't have anything to do with Amazon. It had to do with maybe one of the carriers, U.S., the post office, the FedEx, whatever, may have missed the shipment. But who do they call? The customer calls Amazon. So that's important. But gosh, it's today we, and I'm, I, I'm, I digress here. Give me the original question again. This is what I do. I go down a rabbit hole. A squirrel. Yeah, there we go. Even today, when we have so many opportunities to make offerings self-service for replenishing orders and inventory, what's the importance of still building effective relationships with our customers? So here's where I was going with this. Self-service means giving control to the customer, the right amount of control, which means if you look at the generational differences between the way people like to get support, the baby boomers, you and I like to pick up the phone and call. Not everyone, but most of us do versus the younger generation 
generation, say a millennial or even a Gen Z, they don't mind going self-service, especially Gen Z. They, they like, or millennials especially, they like to take control and see if they can get the answer quickly. But regardless, what we have to do is create an environment and a feeling that no matter what happens, you can reach out to somebody and they're going to be there to take care of you. If I'm failing on my self-service effort, I need to immediately be able to fall into the human to human connection. And knowing it's there is almost enough. Being there when I need it is different. Even going to a grocery store, if you go to the self-checkout line, there's always, and by the way, the, the comedians make the joke about how, what's a self-service checkout? Am I not paying for this service? No, what they're giving you is an alternative to having to wait in line. If you've got a very few items, just zip right through self-service. It's easier and it's quick. There's always, however, a human being standing by to take care of you if you need help. That's in every experience I've had in a self-service checkout line, that person's always there. And that's how you create that relationship in spite of it being self-service. I know that you open the book, The Cult of the Customer, with talking about a genie who goes up to three people who are looking to start a business. And the genie says, I'll let each of you make a wish for the one thing that will ensure your success. And if you choose something that will truly give you that success, I'll grant you that wish. How does that turn out with the three people, Shep? Yeah. So all three of those entrepreneurs are interested in opening an ice cream store. And uh, when the genie shows up, the genie says, normally I give three wishes, but there's three of us to get one. And the first genie said, I want the best ice cream. And the genie said, I won't grant the wish because even having the best ice cream won't guarantee your success. And the second entrepreneur said, he said, I want the best location. And the genie said, I will not grant that wish. Why not? Well, because even if you have the best location and the best ice cream, that doesn't guarantee your success. And uh, he looked at that third entrepreneur and he said, what is your wish? Think hard. And that's when she said, it'd be nice to have the best ice cream. It'd be nice to have the best location. But you know what? I want customers, a lot of customers. I want customers lined out of my store wanting to buy my ice cream. And he said, aha, that will ensure your success. And with that, he granted the wish. Now, here's the, the, the follow-up to that is, I believe his name, Professor Steve Blank at Stanford Business School said something to the effect of, and you're asking me to get, dig into my memory bank. He said, without customers, you don't have a business. That's pretty obvious. But fi finally, somebody said it out loud. That's a real fundamental right there. Yeah. yeah. And the key to having customers and just wanting customers and getting customers is one thing. But the key to the longevity of a business is not to have a huge amount of customer churn where you're constantly trying to replace customers that leave you. I have a client that we do some work with. I've done keynote speeches. They're now using our training products, which are online training and our on-site trainers that go out and deliver in person. And and I talked to them what their biggest problem was. And they said, we have a huge amount of churn in our business. We're constantly making mistakes, which means our customers leave us and go do business elsewhere. And I said, what if we were to reduce that churn by say three to 5%? Because it was millions of dollars they were losing on churn. And I said, what would that be worth to you? They said 3% could be two, $3 million a year. And I'm thinking two, 3% is small numbers in our business. We like to make it more than that. But I asked if I could work on a commission. That's right. At that point, instead of a daily fee, she laughed and goes, no, we'll do the daily fee. But that was the way of saying, look, you're going to make a small investment for a potentially very large return. Now they have multiple locations. And what I suggested doing is to take five of those locations, not all of them. Let's do a pilot program. What I want is I want two rock star locations, a manager sitting in this audience and assistant managers. I want a mediocre, one that's average, that can definitely do better. And then I want two really what I would call laggards. 
Now, we're interested in getting mediocrity up to amazing. And if I can move those laggards up to at least the middle range to start, think about what we can do when they start to see the success. So she was very impressed that I was willing to put my money where my mouth is, walk away from a larger contract, focus on a smaller possibility just to show that if we do it right, it's going to make a big difference. Even in this pandemic lockdown, and here we are in May of 2021, we've been in the lockdown for over a year and we're all having customer experiences in our businesses and in our personal lives. And every time that something unexpected happens, the people who are in contact with customers have an opportunity to create, and I love the phrases that you use in the book, either a moment of misery or a moment of magic. You talk about how St. Louis Ritz had such an opportunity when you arrived on your wedding night with your newlywed wife and your bags had gone someplace else. The Ritz had a quote, opportunity and used that very specific language. Can you talk about what took place and how the individuals who were involved in that finding your luggage project created a distinctly memorable experience for you? It was our wedding night and I wanted to surprise my wife. I wouldn't tell her where we were staying on our wedding night. We're leaving the next day to go on our honeymoon. So I asked her to pack her bags and I went and checked into the Ritz-Carlton in St. Louis, Missouri, which is ironically, I can see it from my office building here. And I, I didn't tell her, but they said the room wasn't ready, but the bag would be waiting in the room when we got there. And that was important because I didn't want to have to get into the hotel and then go check in and search for the bags. We walked in the hotel and the doorman was expecting us. He said, welcome to the Ritz-Carlton, Mr. and Mrs. Hyken. And it was the first time somebody outside of anybody we knew referred to her as that. And that felt pretty cool. We got up to the room, the bags were missing. And I said, no big deal. I know what happened. I checked in earlier. Oh, by the way, the bellman had the key for us too. I didn't even have to go to the front desk. Very cool little extra. I would say, but the bags weren't there. So I said, they must have just forgot to bring the bags up. I'll call. And of course they had lost the bags. They thought they'd put them in the wrong room and they searched and they couldn't find it. And finally I went down and the gentleman picked up the phone because he wanted to make, I, I don't know why he picked up the phone because usually they're empowered to do, but I think he just was checking to make sure he was doing the right thing because he said, tonight we have an opportunity. That's how he referred to it. And I'm thinking opportunity. I'll tell you what this opportunity is. My wife's up there on our wedding night. She's not happy. Alone. I know, alone. Exactly. She goes, when we're talking about all the the luggage is missing and we're going on our honeymoon. And she goes, what am I supposed to wear tomorrow when I wake up? I said, what does it matter? It's our wedding night. You're not wearing anything. But anyway, doesn't I digress. So here's what happens. I go down and they open up the gift shop for me and they let me choose what I needed. Toiletries, sweatshirt, gym shorts, whatever we need to get up. And they said, we'll find the luggage. And sure enough, they did find the luggage in the lost and found, which is probably the first place I would have looked for something that was lost, but they had a lost and found room and that's where they found our luggage. They eventually brought it up when we woke up the next morning and on checkout, you would think I would have gotten a free room, but not at all. No. Instead, I got a, a big apology and I got a request to come back at our anniversary. And they said, we'll take care of that room on your anniversary and show you how it's supposed to be done without the lost luggage. Great little story, but it shows two things, three things, maybe more. Number one, Mistakes are opportunities. Number two, train your people to do what's right or think they know what's right. If they need confirmation, that's fine. But this person who helped me that night in the middle of the night was heading down the right direction. The next morning, the idea of giving something away for free as a band-aid to say, hey, I'm really sorry, let's 
take money off the a room or you've gone to a restaurant, you complain about something and they take it off the bill, which by the way, they'll do every time if you complain, even if there's nothing to complain about. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding about it. Actually, it's true, but don't do it. Okay, don't do it. Anyway, they got me to come back by giving me something the next time. That's when the incentive should happen. I want to give you an incentive to come back. And if I give you something free today, that's not going to do it. Other than it might say, hey, at least they tried to amend for their sins. But when they give it to you when you come back, that's actually extending the relationship. They're expecting you to want to do business with them in the future. And they're saying, when you come back, we want to sweeten it that time. So it makes that impression that much more favorable. Is there more to it? I think that's the goal. The goal is to get them back in the door. Now, there are certain businesses where you need to give away things at a at the moment. I get it. But if, it, for like example, my bank, I've called because there was a fee that I didn't feel was right. And when they explained to me what the fee was, I said, oh my gosh, you know what? I wish I would have known that. I understand now. And you know what they say? You know what? You're going to see a credit on your next statement. What they don't say is, I'm giving you the money back today. And you'll see it. Go check in a few minutes and you'll see it's, but even though it might happen that way, same, same thing with the credit card. We paid it. We put the check in the mail, or maybe it was uh, set up for wire transfer or ACH or whatever they call it. And maybe it took a few days for it to process. But the, the credit card companies are usually very amenable when they see on a regular basis, the guys paid his bills. And this one showed up two days late. It's obvious that that was probably not what I would call an intentional error, if you will. There was no intentionality for it being like, and they're, they have a grace period and they use that to their advantage by saying, you'll notice on the next statement, there's a credit. And it is. It's that next time, because we continue the relationship, it's not going to break the relationship, which is one of the essential messages that I think that they're conveying. One of the things that is central to your book, The Cult of the Customer, is the five-level model of customer experience from alignment to experience, to ownership, to amazement. And those are four models because it's four levels because it starts with uncertainty. The whole framework is predicated on what your customers consistently experience. And without certainty, you can have no consistent experience. With companies that don't have the benefit of this framework, they basically can intuit that they want their staff on board with standards, focused on the customer experience, and taking creative steps to deepen that relationship. What's been your observation about the place that leadership teams have the hardest time translating these objectives into consistent behaviors. Do you have an example you could share about a company that was able to instill this value into their procedures? Oh, that's a layup question, I think. It's a great question. I don't know if you meant this, but I think it's important for everybody to understand that everyone's capable of creating amazement. And amazement is simply a positive experience that's consistent and predictable. And how much better than average does it have to be? You mentioned moments of misery and moments of magic. What you didn't say was moments of mediocrity. That's in the middle. That's actually, to me, more dangerous because people say, how is everything? Oh, it was fine. What does fine mean? So if you think about it, if you ask, if I ask my wife, how is everything? And she says, everything's fine. You know what happens? I know it's not fine. Fine means I'm, I'm faking my smile. F stands for fake smile. I is insincere response. N is if I'm a business, I never want to ever come back again. And E is, it really is emotionless, even though I t- it's okay. It's not okay. So moments of misery come from complaints or problems or 
are apathetic attitudes, okay? Just a bad attitude, bad experience. Everything worked, but I don't like the people, the way it was handled. Mediocrity is average. It's in the middle. People don't complain about average. They just don't come back. That's why I think average is so important to understand. Magic, moments of magic, is anything better than mediocre, anything better than just okay. And sometimes it's over the top okay, and other times it's just a tiny bit better. What you want is customers to say, you're amazing. You always call me back when you say you will. You always are helpful. You're always knowledgeable. The word always followed by something good. So back to your original question. How do you instill this? It has to be in your culture. It can't be just, hey, everybody do a good job. It's got to really be ingrained. The Ritz-Carlton, back to talking about one of my favorite companies in the world, did it great when Horst Scholz said, we're ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. That's their credo. And what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. We've got 24 gold standards that drive that. These are the non-negotiables that you have to understand in order to be able to deliver an experience where you are a lady or a gentleman serving a lady or a gentleman. Okay. And so how do you teach that? This is what they do. Everybody, there's a number of different techniques they use beyond the gold standards and they have other, their, their other areas of training, but everybody gets these. They're taught at the beginning. And then on a daily basis, they're reminded of one of these gold standards. And at the end of the 24th day in a row, and I know you may not work 24 days in a row, but at the end of a year, you will hear these about 10 times because they start over again on number one at the end of day 24. And before every shift, the management has a team huddle where the team gets to talk about that standard. And if you're in St. Louis, Missouri, or you're over in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East, you will hear the same gold standard. That's how consistent they are. And that's one of the reasons why they're consistently looked at as one of the top iconic brands of the world. And nobody is perfect. I get that. But they are more than their fair share and recognized by everybody as consistently being above all of the time. Another company that you write extensively about is Wegmans. Oh, yeah. And there's someone who has a, a lot of customers and they don't hire people who may have had the best training, but their culture really elevates the people in their organization. Talk about what they are obsessed with that makes them such a standout company in terms of customer experience. They may not come from a background of having the best training. That's important, but they have the right personality. They have the right behavior style, and they know that when they're hiring people coming in. And How did they screen for that, Chef? Do you have any insights into that? You know, I'm not sure how they screen for it, but I'll tell you about another. Uh, Wegmans is a retail grocery chain recognized for great legendary service. And by the way, that's just, it's in their culture. It's part of what they do. There's another organization, Hy-Vee, which is a regional, when I say regional, they're huge, okay? Wegmans is big. I think Hy-Vee even may be larger. One of the cool things they do in their hiring process process is they'll ask somebody to come in a few minutes early and walk around the store and make some observations that they might talk about in the interview. That's a pretty cool way of saying, what did they pick up on? I know I, I know it isn't in, I know I talk about Nordstrom in the book, but this is not in the Cult of the Customer book, but something that Nordstrom does, they ask for the definition of what customer service is when they do an interview. Now, here's what's interesting. There's, I, I'm going to probably exaggerate a little. There's a thousand right answers, okay? And there's a bunch of wrong answers. There's no exact right answer, but as long as it's in line with what Nordstrom is about, they say this person gets what good customer service is about. Yeah, it's actually having a, a, an employee or a prospective employee put it into their own words, which really makes the difference. I, I love that approach. Somebody might say, I want the customer to walk away happy every time we do business with them. Okay, that's a great, what's your definition of customer service? That's a great one. Or another one might say, not making mistakes. Okay, I'm not sure I like that one as much as the other, but you know what? It's not a wrong answer. Here's an interesting story. I 
interviewed at the time, oh, Jim Bush is his name, the former senior vice president worldwide of customer experience and service for American Express. And he said, we hire people to work the call centers around the world. And if you have a background in hospitality, like you worked at a hotel or a restaurant for any extended period of time, they would choose somebody who'd never worked in the call center industry over somebody that did if they had that background. Because that hospitality mentality is one of the things they're trying to find and coach to in their uh, customer. So you're saying that if they had that background, they would be favored or they would be filtered out? Oh, they would be favored. They would be favored. Yep. It's very easy. His exact words where I can teach somebody to, to jump around or switch screens, the technical side of you have a question, I can pull up the screen. He can teach that. Okay. But sometimes he has difficulty teaching the the behaviors that are important because one of the ways that the RIT, not the RITs, the American Express executives were compensated was based on the ratings of the front line. And they used NPS, net promoter score, which that is a simple question on a scale of zero to 10. What's the likelihood that you would recommend us? And that basically is grading. Uh, it's a history lesson. Did we do a good enough job that they would say, if there was an opportunity that they would say, hey, you should try the American Express card. So another example that stands out from your book, Shep, is when Dave Checkerts purchased the St. Louis Blues. Former owner of the St. Louis Blues. Yes. He did that back in 2005. And one of his first executive decisions was to raise ticket prices. Now I'm from Philadelphia and I could tell you that wouldn't go over very well with Philadelphia sports fans. How did it roll out from in St. Louis and what did he learn from it? Learning that was really the magic of that example. Yeah. So here's the point. The cult of the customer in the culture, if you are truly customer focused, every decision you make, even if it means raising prices, means that you're going to consider how the experience to the customer is going to be. Now, if you go back and you say, we listened to you, we learned, we're going to roll back prices to what they were, we're going to refund the money to the people that paid higher. It's okay. That's really good. But if I came back and said to you, you know what? I'm so glad to hear that you're upset that we raised the prices because because I would be upset too if all of a sudden it was a major price increase. But let me tell you why we have to do this. Because, and you can give a hundred different reasons why. I'm going to jump to a completely different company. The company manufactures electronic bikes, e-bikes that have, and companies called Radical Bikes, I believe. They were forced to raise their prices when the tariff of bringing in all the different components from foreign countries, there was a, a major raise. And that just happened in the last few years, okay, under the Trump administration. And so what he did is he said, I've got to raise prices. It's eroded my margins to the point where I can't stay in business. But he said, I have to raise prices X percent. Here's where it's costing me money. And he explained to his customers exactly what was happening. And the customer said, thank you for explaining it. And he sold more bikes. See, you see, that's the difference. And by the way, you can always go back and say, we learned. But a customer-focused organization takes consideration even of, of bad decisions that, when I say bad, they're good decisions for the company, bad in the eyes of the customer until you tell them why, and then they understand. And in doing so, you build a stronger relationship with that customer because you've taken the time to let them in on the decision-making process. It's a trust factor. You were open about it. And for Radical to say, here's our numbers. We've been forced to, you know, our bike frames that we get from China, there's now a 15% 
magnificent. It was terrifying. We're, we can't stay in business. If you want our bikes to maintain the standards that you're used to, you've got to let us be able to build them and make a reasonable amount of money that we can keep growing. Many people will be surprised that you call it the cult of the customer because cults have all sorts of different connotations. Talk about the core reason that cult is the appropriate word that you chose to talk about that with the, the book. Yeah. Cult is not a dirty word. I, I actually had a client that I sent the book to, the CEO, and the book was sent back. I couldn't understand why. And I called his assistant and, and he was so offended by the word cult. And I said, he should have read, it's on the inside jacket cover, but it's also in the book, that a cult is derivative of the Latin word, I believe, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, cultus, something to that effect. And it's about a group of people that have a common interest, a shared interest. So in effect, if I go to the park every Saturday morning to meet with the same people and we take a five mile run through the park and have breakfast every Saturday morning, in a sense, that's like a cult. And of course, there's all kinds of cults out there that we don't really need to talk about that give the word cult a bad name at times. But really, the cult is, is to play off the idea that culture is so important inside an organization. And we want a group of employees with a shared common interest in taking care of each other and our customers to ensure that each and every person gets the best of what we have to offer. I love that it jars people into thinking about it because it raises awareness through its... It's fun. It's a friend of mine was involved in the Aflac commercial, Aflac. And she wasn't my friend at the time, but I watched her do a speech. And it was right at the time my publisher said, we want to call the book Cult of the Customer. And I was asking my friends, is that okay? What do you think of the word cult? And she said, it's like the Aflac commercial. People love it or they hate it, but they remember it. And when they see your book on a bookshelf, in the middle of the business books, it says the word cult. That's going to stand out. Now, some people might be turned off to it until they read what's on the inside, or it might they may love it, but either way, they're going to notice it. And that's really important. Shep, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? I'm ready. I'm sitting back. I'm, I'm ready. So at the beginning of the interview, I asked you about a person who influenced or inspired you. You talked about your grandfather and the, the great experience you had working three days a week at his drugstore. When you were a teenager, Shep, what's a song that you loved? I love doing magic. So do you believe in magic? Love and Spoonful. Each week, you look to get the word out about the importance of customer service, how to do it well, and how to take it to higher and higher levels. During the pandemic, what's been the most effective way you've found to get the word out to people who need to hear this message and those who you can help? Sure. So every single week, I write a newsletter, and that newsletter is an article that is posted on my website as a blog, sent out to my subscribers at no charge, and I turn it into a video. So I hit multiple formats, and I love it when companies call me and say, we've been using your videos for years because every week I put a new, there's like 600 plus videos on my website. All the content that I cover is available in little bite-sized chunks. And they say, we show it to our people every week in our meetings. Thank you. Now we want to hire you. I love that part of it the best. That's great. What's the best business advice you ever received? Wow. The best business advice I ever received, my mentor, Bud Dietrich, who I jokingly referred to him as my illegitimate father, but he could not refer to me as his illegitimate son. When I was first getting 
into this business, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I came up with the new way of saying it. He told me, work 40 hours a week at getting business and you'll be successful. Don't think that writing the speech and practicing the speech is daytime activity. You can do that night and weekends, but 40 hours during business hours. And basically what he was saying is the job isn't doing the speech. It's getting the speech. In the last six months or so, what would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made? Music lessons. No. For an instrument? <laughs> yeah, I play guitar and every once in a while, I just want to take it to another level. And I think guitar is my reasonable, easy to do, break away from the norm. You, you People can't see it, but I'm in my office. At home, I have 10 guitars on the wall. I've got my two guitars back here. When everybody leaves, I play a little guitar, get my head in a whole different space, and I go back to work. And as long as I can keep loving that instrument, it really does great things to my head. Shep, what's been the best customer experience you've had either in business or in your personal life in the last six months? In the last six months? Wow. I have flown a number of times and I'm really impressed. At the beginning of when I was getting back in and hardly anybody was flying, the compassion that the flight attendants were sharing early on, it was like they were so appreciative that anybody would even consider flying. I had to feel very safe. That was important. If I didn't feel safe, I would turn around. I was the extreme compliant mask wearer. I've been double dosed with the getting my shots. I'm, so it's nice to see that compassion. I fear that it will disappear and people who will go back to resorting to old ways. But that's what I think got me excited was seeing how compassionate people can be. Yeah, let's hope that continues because I hate that we need a pandemic to make that happen. Shep, in the last year or so, what is a habit, belief, or routine that you've stopped, taken out of your life that's given you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Not going to the gym in the mornings. No, I'm just, I always say, oh, I forgot to go to the gym this morning. That's three years now I've been forgetting. No, what habit have I stopped doing? Wow, I don't, nobody's asked me that before, at least not in the last year. I would say, I just, you've stumped me. And truly what I've stopped, I like to think that I stopped eating as much, but that wouldn't be true. No, I work out a different way. What happened is something I stopped doing was because of the pandemic, the ice rink shut down, okay? So I couldn't go and play ice hockey which I did four days, three to four days a week. Instead, we replaced that habit with bike riding. So the guys I play hockey with, especially during the week, you can't do it. We would do these long bike rides, 30, 40, 50 miles, which takes several hours. Can't do that on a weekday morning if you've got to go to work. But on Saturdays, that's what we did. We stopped one habit and picked up another. By the way, now we try to fit both of them in. Yeah, the ice rink opens up again. So what are two or three specific recommendations you could give a listener who's a manager of a team with a vision for attaining the transformation from satisfied customer to evangelist. They have it in some parts in their organization, but it's going to take a lot of work to get there. What are two or three tips you could give them to get them going in the right direction? I mentioned a little bit already that customer service, I didn't say it this way, but it's not a department. It's ingrained in the culture. It's a philosophy to be embraced by everyone. So even if you're, so that's number one is to recognize it's cultural. Number two, to make it cultural, get everybody to understand what their role is in the whole process. They may be dealing with the front line, on the front line, dealing with customers, or they may be behind the scenes supporting people that are. But once they understand that their role plays an important part of the experience, person in the warehouse never sees the customer. But if they pack the product wrong in the box and it gets their damage, they played a huge role in that customer's experience. When everybody starts to understand their role, that's important. So number one, recognize it's cultural. Number two, let everybody know what their role is. Number three, train everyone about that role. 
what is their experience? What is the experience you're supposed to provide, either directly to a customer or to an internal customer? And when you start to do the right training, both internally and on the front line for external customers, you start to see that culture shift. But it's everybody, not just one person. And this is not meant to be a plug, but like our online learning programs, which are video-based on demand, our flagship program is meant, it's called the customer focus. It's meant to be experienced by every single person in a company, not just people who deal with customers. Because you've got to understand the internal customer concept is just as important. And what's something you're excited about right now in your business? Right now, I'm excited about a new book. Now, we've been talking about the cult of the customer, but the new book is titled, I'll Be Back, How to Get Customers to Come Back Again and Again. And it's probably about maybe 80% brand new material because I always include foundational concepts in every one of my books. So it's not, oh, I didn't read his first book. Now I have to go buy it. No, you've got the foundational concepts. But I am so excited about some of the new ideas in the last year or two that have come out that I think are, are really important to a business today. Shep, we'd love to have you back to talk about that. I can't wait. In the meantime, Shep, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. You've been super generous today in sharing your ideas and your experiences all about the cult of the customer and the importance of really addressing that. First of all, starting with, it's not necessarily, if the genie was to give you the wish for what to want, it's not the best product, it's not the best location, it's a never-ending stream of loyal customers. And the key to having customers is lowering the churn. We talked about the idea of making sure that they're not just happy and not just um, mediocre. Let me just back up. It's not just a mediocre experience, but looking to have a moment of magic and do that by creating an emotional connection and really shifting their attitude by taking the extra steps. You mentioned so many ideas and so many companies. I want to thank you for um, bringing those up and helping us understand through your experience how to achieve that cult of customer. Thank you. And Shep, before we say goodbye for now, where is it that we can find out more about you and your work online? Sure. The new book, I'llBeBackBook.com, or just go to Hyken.com, H-Y-K-E-N.com, and find you'll find me there. Shep, we're going to link to your main website, your social media, as well as links to all of your books to make it super easy for people listening to the podcast to find out what's going on and keeping up with you and the customer experience work that you do. Well, thank you. So Shep Hyken, author of The Cult of the Customer, thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great experience. Can't wait to come back. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.